Wete. I am your host, Stella. I'm Kimberly Rockmore, your Watchtower News Desk correspondent. And this is Backroad to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, Episode 8 for June MMX. That's 2010. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, Boy Wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. Episode 8 is brought to you by Stink Eye Spray. Are you tired of the girl in third period giving you the stink eye for stealing her boyfriend? Annoyed by the guy on the other team who shoots you the stink eye every time you line up to shoot a foul shot? Stink Eye Spray is the perfect solution. Just one spritz in each of your adversary's eyes will do the trick and rid you of his or her stink eye forever. Warning, may cause partial blindness. Bad Girl to Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. An example of the prices you may encounter is Detective Comics number 392, featuring Batgirl from 1969, in fine condition for $28.35, plus 30% off vintage backstock. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. Again, examples of the prices you may encounter are August's Batgirl No. 13 and Birds of Prey No. 4, both for $2.69. So, if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out milehighcomics.com. So this episode... I certainly got a lot of questions, which I'm really excited about, so let's just dive into the uh, proverbial mailbag. First off, from Bertoni Beetle, or just uh, Joshua Bertoni. Uh, no question for me, really, but I noticed that your petition caught the attention of Chuck Dixon. Just want to say, job well done there. Thank you so much. Um, I was also very pleased to also get an email from Scott Betty thanking me and, you know, frankly, all of you as well for what we've done with the petition. So that was very wonderful. Next up, Hollister for Mayor. Number one, a couple of episodes ago you said the killing joke was the only thing you are not looking forward to reviewing. What about Nightwing Annual number two? Yes, I am a scumbag. Well, uh, first off, I think this is all I have to say about that. <laughs> uh, yeah. What up, what up, dude, boy? I 
go by the name of Rude Boy, Viz, baby, I could Major Boy. Come here, Rude Boy, boy, can you get it up? Come here, Rude Boy, boy, is you big enough? Take it, take it, baby, baby. You ain't gotta ask me that question, baby. Hear your body talking and it's calling me So I'ma have to hit it up, I hope you follow me I can take your big places where you long to me That means I get it what up, get it up, no doubt, not even a problem I need a sidekick, so how about it, Robin? And her reply was Uh, uh, yeah She said, busy, 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 who she want, uh, want So you know I gave it to her like boom, boom Put the beat to her drum like a one-two groove Cause you know we had to kick it like a kung fu move <laughs> Come on, rude boy, boy, can you get it up? Yep. Come on, rude boy, boy, is you big enough? Baby, I am, baby Yeah, baby, baby, yeah. Take it, uh, take it, uh, uh, yeah. Come on, rude boy, boy, uh -huh, can you uh -huh. get it up? Come on, rude boy, boy, is you big enough? Wouldn't you like to know? Yeah, baby, baby, yeah, take it, take it, yeah Okay, well, that's probably enough of that. But, you know, not all of the annual is terrible. Uh, it's just that one part uh, to which I know you are referring. And basically, Kevin and I have decided never to talk about that until it is absolutely necessary. It was a really scumbaggy thing to do. Not you asking the question, but uh, just um, what Nightwing does to Barbara and, frankly, to Starfire, really. Uh, even though I'm not the hugest Starfire fan, it, it was pretty low. So, um, for the most part, you know, probably looking forward to reading that a little bit more than Killing Joke. Uh, it's just sort of that, that one uh, bit, I would say. Number two. Spider-Man versus Batgirl in an all-out brawl. Who would win to the death? Uh, well, since apparently Elektra would defeat Batgirl, and Spidey has single-handedly defeated the X-Men on two different occasions, sadly, Spider-Man would probably put Barbara in a body bag, unfortunately. However, if it were Cassandra Kane, I don't know. I think the odds might lean towards her favor. I I'm not sure. Some Cassandra Kane fans would have to... Um, Cassandra and, like, yeah, Donovan, he'd have to let me know which one he would think uh, would win in that match. Number three. On Crawlspace 100, you said you would prefer Batgirl to stay paraplegic. What about in an alternate reality? Uh, well, to be more specific, um, I said that, you know, I've sort of come to this realization that Barbara is doing a lot of good, um, as she is right now. Uh, I, I don't think that Babs needs to be Batgirl in order to help the world. You know, she has proven time and again that she really plays an important role in the DCU as Oracle and I think that Stephanie right now deserves her time in the cowl. As for whether Bab should stay paraplegic, I don't honestly know. It's it's sort of a yes and no question. It goes back and forth. Um, it's, it's something different for a character. You know, how many um, characters in a wheelchair do we know? You know, off the top of my head all I can think is Professor Xavier basically. You know, I do miss seeing her in the action rather than sort of living through the birds. And I think if she were to become cured, if that were to, you know, down the line, if that were to happen, at least she, she'd probably still be the leader of it all. But, you know, maybe she'd be able to actually go on missions with Dinah and Huntress and the rest. 
Number four, fate or a match made in hell, Nightwing Batgirl. <laughs> well, you know, fate so long as they uh, get over some of the crap that has happened to both of them. Um, I don't think it's a match made in hell. I think it works out. But, you know, it sort of works out in these ideal conditions when the sun and the moon align and it's 70 degrees out and it's, you know, a wonderful day. So... I guess we'll just have to wait and see what Gail Simone does and how the characters line up. Number five. Do you think slash want Batgirl to be in the upcoming Batman direct-to-DVD film Under the Red Hood? This is sort of a yes and no answer for me. Um, I don't really want that to be her debut, but perhaps in you know an appearance in that movie could get people excited enough to write in and support the petition and really show WB that uh, Batgirl Year One movie is worthwhile. Up next we have Steve J. Rogers. Have you read The Dark Knight Returns? I have not, but I did recently see it advertised in my uh, Birds of Prey Volume 1 issues. He, As a follow-up, he says, If so, what are your thoughts about the Carrie Kelly Robin? Where would you rank her among Batman's sidekicks? Uh, well, I guess I can't really answer any of this. Probably... You know, I'll just say that she probably goes probably below Dick and Tim. Um, I think people generally hate Jason, and, uh, well, Jason is actually preferable for me to Damien, so... Oh, well, and then you have Steph, so maybe she would be fourth, And but I don't even know her, so I, I don't want to give her um, the short end of the stick or anything. T.S. Champ asks, is Kevin going to be a regular co-host now? Um, no. Uh, right now, um, I mean, he will come on infrequently. You know, he came on for Batgirl Year One uh, because I was actually the one who got him to read that, and um, he loved it as much as I did, so I thought it'd be good to go back and forth uh, with him on that. And then he came in for Birds... I'm sorry, The Brave and the Bull, number 33, obviously. Um, number one, he's a huge Baz fan, and then number two... Uh, James Michael uh, Straczynski wrote that, and he's a big fan of his. So, you know, he'll come on uh, whenever there are, you know, story ones that I want to talk uh, with him about. Um, he's a big Nightwing fan, so that's going to come into play. And he's also a dig and bad shipper like I am. So if there are sort of key moments uh, throughout, then he'll probably definitely come in. But, you know, right now I sort of like being... I guess, my own host and co-host, um, not to be egotistical or anything. Uh, I just really want to prove to myself and, you know, to others out there that, you know, I and, and even you, you know, you can make it on your own without sort of having, you know, someone else there with you. It There may come a time when, you know, I think, yeah, it's time to bring somebody else on to, uh, you know, to um, offer other opinions. Uh, but right now, you know, we have a wonderful reviewer uh, on the Batgirl to Oracle message board, Zayas, um, and I really like how his reviews differ from mine, um, not only in format, but, you know, he he likes certain things that maybe I'm not too fond of, like he's more of a fan of Wendy than I am right now in Batgirl, so, you know, you have differing opinions there, but right now, you know, just on my own, trying to make it on my own, prove to everyone that, yes, I can do this podcast, and, uh, it's, it might not be forever, I'm not gonna say that forever, I'm going to do this by myself, but just for right now.
Donamark or or Donovan um, from the Spider-Man Crawl Space Metrics Board asks: Is there a positive aspect of Babs and Stephanie's respective personalities that you think the other lacks? Basically, does Steph have something in her Batgirl persona that Babs didn't have, and so forth? I think certainly uh, Steph's positivity and ability to smile under pressure. Um, not to say that Babs was a, a Debbie Downer, but I do think that Batman's seriousness certainly wore off more on, on Barbara. And then I think in the opposite side, uh, Babs, her ability to be a detective, I think that's something that Stephanie really needs to learn um, in this book. Extreme Spider asks, first off, congrats to the winner. Uh, oh yes, of the Make the Intro Contest, of course. I, I haven't touched upon that yet, but hopefully you all enjoy the new intro. I'll announce who actually did that intro later. He asks, I saw the pilot for the Birds of Prey TV show and thought to ask you, what's your favorite episode and which episode best represents Barbara? I think the Lady Shiva episode is both my favorite and best represents Babs. You know, it really shows her determination and strength. And it shows her as Batgirl. So, I mean, you're sort of getting the all-in-one package. So I think that is one of the strongest strongest episodes. Walka asks, If DC were to cast a Babs in a live-action film, who would you want to play her? To reuse this question a few times, cast her as, number one, Batgirl in a Nolan-ish movie. Number two, Oracle in a Nolan-ish movie. Number three, Batgirl in a greater DCU movie, maybe like in a Nightwing movie. Number four, Oracle in a greater DCU movie, maybe like uh, in a Nightwing movie. If you change the actresses, why? If you didn't, why not? Okay, um, I think Summer Glau. Basically, we've all decided on this one for uh, Batgirl parts. And I think Amanda Barron. Uh, she is a theater actress. You should definitely look her up for Oracle. Um... I would not change them between, I guess, if it was Nolan or just a greater DCU movie, because I like consistency. But I do think that Oracle needs to be slightly older, so I don't think that Summer Glau could necessarily pull off an Oracle part, though that one appearance in The Dollhouse, she did have those glasses on it, and it really was giving me an Oracle vibe. But I think that she'd be better, I mean, she looks young, so I think that she would really fit the Batgirl part, but I think you need sort of... Someone that looks um, looks older to be Oracle. Are you happy with the current size of the Bat family? Batman, Robins, 1 through 5. Batgirls, 1 through 3. Alfred and the other army of B-string heroes. Do you feel this takes away from Batman's loner personality? Well, now I'm wondering if it's Batman... Let's see, if it's Robins, 1 through 6. Let's see, we have Dick, Jason, Tim, Stephanie, Damien, and then this Carrie Kelly person whom I've never heard of, but I guess it's Robins 1 through 6. I mean, yeah, I'm fine with, I guess, the current size, and I mean, can you even consider Robins 1 through 5 as like this collective group, whereas you just think of one Robin at a time? You know, I think that number one, yes, it's a good size, and number two, each of these people really help humanize Batman, and I think, like I've said before, really keep him from going completely into the Batman identity, because... I mean, he's sort of on that threshold every day, and I think that when he does have a partner that it keeps him from crossing the line. Whatever happened to Jim Jr. and Barbara Gordon, the brother and mother? Also, does this mean the Gordon family was Mr. James Gordon, Mrs. Barbara Gordon, and their kids James and Barbara Jr.? Well, the tough thing is... 
pre-crisis or post-crisis, you know, at first Barbara Sr. Uh, was dead, but then it was actually changed to where she and Jim are now divorced, and she lives elsewhere with their son, Jim Jr., I think in Chicago. Um, I don't think there is that much to know about them, except for that. So whatever happened to them, who knows? It could be an awesome what-if or elseworld story, I suppose. Other than Robin, who are some of her other love interests? Also, are Supergirl and Bad still good friends? If so, why is she not a bird of prey? Two love interests, I guess, off the top of my head are Jason Bard, which was the first main squeeze. Um, good time to ask this question, actually, since um, it's very felicitous, because we're going to get into Jason Bard's first appearance. Um, and Ted Cord, though, that never blossomed into a relationship. It was cute, though. I, I've been reading No Birds of Prey, and I mean, I wish she had sort of a, a cyber friend, so she won't completely go over to the dark side. Um, you know, I gather that Supergirl and Babs are still friends, but perhaps not good friends. Um, I think this is another confusing question, because I'm not really sure which Supergirl it is right now. Pre- pre-crisis, they were really good friends, I would say. I mean... Batgirl, I think, spoke at her funeral um, during Crisis on Infinite Earths. But post, um, you know, it seems like Supergirl and Steph will be getting close soon because Supergirl is about to appear in Batgirl. As for why Supergirl is not a bird, um, I'd say it's probably because Power Girl is a sometimes member and I don't really think there's a need to be uh, redundant. So, And I see those as um, two similar characters, in my opinion. I know heroes and villains have been super mashed together by this point, but there are still thoughts of certain villains belonging to certain heroes. I also know that Babs takes a lot from Batman, but does she have any of her own villains? If so, who? I would say that at least Calculator is her own villain, um, sort of the anti-Oracle. You've got the Ravens, though uh, it may be difficult to classify them wholly as villains. Um, They're sort of, they're mercenaries, I guess, so sort of goes back and forth. And then Blockbuster, though, she shares him with Nightwing. Now for a very personal one, also kind of easy. Back when Babs was at her full functionality, who would you think would win in a fight, Spider-Man or Babs? Well, this is the second time I've been asked this. Uh, yeah, it probably would be Spider-Man um, if it were Barbara fighting him. As for whether Cassandra would beat Spider-Man, I have no idea. But Barbara, yeah, sadly, I guess she'd be defeated. Okay, next up, we have one of our newer members at the Batgirl to Oracle message board, TNR105. Hey, Stella, I found your podcast through the crawl space, and it rocks. Thank you. I know you've stated that you will be covering the different media incarnations of Babs, but I was wondering what you thought of the Batman Beyond Babs from the Bruce Tim cartoons. This version of Babs never became Oracle and instead became the hard-nosed police commissioner of Gotham City of 2039. She happily settled down with a husband named Sam, who happens to be the district attorney. Although she doesn't approve Bruce uh, letting Terry McGinnis become the new Dark Knight, she tolerates them and occasionally allies herself with them. In the direct TV film, sorry, direct to video film, Batman Beyond Return of the Joker, it is revealed why she hung up her cowl wonder if it would be hung or hanged. Anyway, and left the hero business when Joker does something to Tim Drake so horrible it puts both Killing Joke and a death in the family to shame. 
as he abducts 12-year-old Tim Drake. I recommend you check out the uncut version as the tragedy hits you even worse. Bab says that Tim wanted to be Robin just to have fun, and after Bruce put him in the line of fire, both she and Dick quit the hero business and part ways with Bruce. Well, the Babs from Batman Beyond is certainly a different direction, uh, but one which really makes sense. Uh, I could certainly see Babs going the commissioner route, but I think that something will have to happen to make her walk away from the birds, i.e. Dinah probably getting killed. Uh, to continue on with the the email, also not to answer the previous poster's question for you, I think Summer Glau would be a great Babs, but do you think Jake Gyllenhaal would be a good Nightwing? You know, after seeing Prince of Persia, it seems like either he or his stuntman at least knows some acrobatics. Um, he's really big, though. I mean, like, muscly, and, and I guess stocky wouldn't be it, because he's he's kind of tall, even though I thought his co-star was um, kind of leaning over him. Um, you know, I just always imagined Nightwing being leaner with a medium build. Uh, I thought Chris O'Donnell was a really good Robin. Um, I know there are probably booze in the audience, whatever. Uh, though I suppose he is too old now. You know, Ian Summerhalder, I think, from Lost could also be a good choice. You know, he doesn't need to be, like, extremely thin, but I think he does, he's leaner and with, uh, I don't know, defined muscles, who knows. I mean, yeah, he doesn't need to be, a a hottie, but Jake Gyllenhaal is just, he had gotten so big for that role, so I just, I am not sure about that. Okay, continuing on. Also, Alex Ross stated in his book, Rough Justice, the modern Batwoman costume was originally for Babs in a story by Paul Denny in which she would go in a Lazarus pit, oh no, one of those, and be able to walk. If Babs was cured by a Lazarus pit or otherwise, would she remain as Oracle or return to the life of the capes? You know, I think that she would stay with the birds, but perhaps pick up a new identity. Kind of like what Tim did when he, he put on the Red Robin uh, cowl. I think she could be Oracle at some points, but then maybe she'd actually be able to have the option to go on a mission with the birds. He continues. Also, you asked about Kingdom Come last episode. It was a possible future that was negated by certain events like the death of the second Blue Beetle and the return of Hal Jordan. Babs doesn't appear save for a waitress in costume in Booster Gold's Planet Krypton restaurant, a Planet Hollywood-like establishment in which the employees dress like Super Friends era heroes. It is still an epic story despite a lack of Babs. I have in my uh, possession now Kingdom Come, so I don't really have to read that, but thank you for the update. You know, some things confuse me, you know, how, how writers keep continuity straight. I mean, all these things that happen, like Black Canary is not the Black Canary that you would have been reading way back when in the Silver Age. So confusing. And that how how does the death of the second Blue Beetle, like, turn around time? It's it's very odd. I, I don't understand. I don't think I could be a comic book writer, basically, if I had to keep in tight continuity. Also, it cannot be disputed that each member of the Bat family has an arch nemesis. Bruce has Joker, Dick has Deathstroke, Tim has Crazy Quilt, sorry, I had to think about that one. Tim has Crazy Quilt, uh, this is official as Michael Bailey, I guess, said. Babs has Calculator, I agree. Jason has Two-Face, Catwoman has Black Mask, which is an interesting pick. Cassandra has Lady Shiva, I agree. Damien has Ra's al Ghul, I agree also, since that's his grandpappy, isn't it? 
Who at this point would you call Stephanie Brown's arch nemesis, and what do you think makes a good arch enemy? You know, I don't know if Stephanie has um, one right now. Uh, I think a spoiler, her nemesis was probably her father, Crewmaster. You know, as for what makes a good arch enemy, I think that they need to be you, but opposite. You know, someone that has all of your abilities and can test you in everything, but uh, is evil. Basically, your doppelganger. What media incarnation of Babs is more loyal to the comics, and what incarnations do you think are terribly off-base? I think Batgirl, here won the movie when it's made, will be very close to um, what Babs is. Uh, but, you know, to be honest, uh, I think Dinah Meyer, or I don't think it's Dinah Meyer, but Dinah Meyer in Birds of Prey was really close to the original um, Oracle model. I think she did a fantastic job, and I think that her parts, more than the rest of the the main characters, were written rather well. And I think his final question, after talking to my sister Becca, together we have decided Hollywood has no idea how to make a comic book film based solely on a female hero. I give you Catwoman, Elektra, Supergirl. Why do you think Hollywood execs have such a hard time adapting strong female characters to the big screen? And what do you think needs to happen to create a movie about our favorite sheroes? You know, I think it always comes down to the writing. And it happens to all heroes, but I think that really it is the girls that have gotten the fuzzy end of the stick consistently. I've not seen Catwoman, and it has been a long time since I have seen Supergirl, but Elektra wasn't, I mean, it wasn't awful. You know, there were problems, but it could have been worse. I I think that there could have been a better story to portray for that movie. I think that Hollywood is hopefully learning with these bombs, and I think that it's time to do a Wonder Woman movie that will surely set an example. You know, to prevent bad writing, there is a need to hire people that are not only familiar with the comics... But with the character as well, you, you know, you can't bring on someone that uh, the resume lists, you know, Barbie, the Candyland adventure, and, and decide that that's the best person to hop on and write Wonder Woman. I mean, obviously, that's probably not going to be the, the best way to go. So hire good people, number one, and um, get good writing. I mean, that's my answer there. I do hope that we get more female-led movies, but... Only time will tell, and it seems like on both sides of the tracks, on cartoons and live action, that they're only interested in the men. So, I guess we'll see. If they're really planning to do a Justice League, they need to do Wonder Woman. It has to come sometime. Now we're going to go over to Kimberly Rockmore at the Watchtower News Desk for several bits of interesting and exciting news. Thank you, Stella. First of all, it is my pleasure to announce the winner of our Create an Intro Contest as George Berryman and Stella of Deaf Berry Jam Productions. George will receive a copy of Sex, Money, Good Grades, and Other Things That You Won't Get in College by Brad Mendenhall. Batman Year One According to Comics Continuum, Batman Year One is being adapted as one of Warner Home Video's DC Universe animated movies. Sam Liu was cited as the director of the project. Liu has previously directed Hulk vs. Planet Hulk, Superman Batman Public Enemies, and co-directed Justice League Crisis on Two Earths. The idea of making another Batman animated feature does make sense following comments made by Bruce Timm earlier this year regarding the greater response to the Batman, Superman, and Justice League films. 
An adaptation of Batman Under the Red Hood is already slated to be the next DC animated movie. Ahem, yes, a greater responsibility to Batman means ditching a Batgirl Year One movie. In what universe does that make sense? Let's go from this Year One to Batgirl Year One. Speaking of which, on the summer solstice, June 21st, at approximately 1100 hours EST, three letters were sent off to the bigwigs at Warner Home Video. Don't stop signing and promoting the petition, though, my friends. This is not over until we see this Domino Daredevil in a 90-minute feature. White Canary Rumors For those of you who have read Birds of Prey Volume 2 Number 1, there are rumors as to the identity of White Canary. At the end of the issue, Dinah says that it is either Lady Shiva, whom I thought it was just by looking at her, or Cassandra Kane. These rumors are coming from, in my opinion, people who desire cast to come back to the comics fold. Cassandra has been absent since Batgirl number one, and her name made a brief appearance in Red Robin number 13. But is this the way you fans want her to return? Well, if she is the White Canary, then I suppose we may be getting a spin-off book rather soon, shan't we? Opinions on the matter? Share them on the BTO boards. And while you're there, be sure to stop by the Ask Writer Brian Q. Miller a Question thread. That's right. Mr. Miller has kindly agreed to come on the show, and he has also agreed to answer some of your questions. There are, however, three rules by which you must abide. Number one, no questions about Smallville. Mr. Miller has already told me that he cannot discuss anything Smallville-related. This is, of course, a Batgirl podcast anyway. Winky smiley face. Number two, no rambling questions. As this is the first guest, it'd be great to be as problem-free as possible and to not take up a lot of Mr. Miller's time. Please make the question short, sweet, and to the point. Number three, limit of three questions. Stella loves answering your questions, but she doesn't want to scare away our guest or make this a taxing event. Stella also doesn't want to have to delete questions. Make the list no longer than three questions. In the event of an overload of questions, Stella does reserve the right to edit the number allowed per person. It's the perfect time to join the Batgirl to Oracle message board. You can also email your questions to Batgirl to Oracle at gmail.com. Back to you, Stella. Thanks, Kimberly. Now, on to the best part of the podcast, right guys? The reviews. First up, we have Batman number 214, Batman's Marriage Trap. Coming out in August of 1969. The cover artist, Irv Novick. Writer, Frank Robbins. Penciler, Irv Novick. And inker, Joe Giella. The best, I, I guess, couple quotes that I came up with. Um, As the elephant said when the crocodile snipped off his trunk, they're we funny. And you can lead a bat chore to the altar, but you can't make him say I do. While Batman is occupied with his involvement in a televised beauty pageant where the winner gets a night on the town with Batman, the criminal known as Strack and his thugs rob different locations in the city. The next day, Strack realizes that he can use Batman's eligible bachelor status against him by using his own girlfriend, Cleo, Strack's girlfriend, not Batman's, to back a campaign called Women to End Bat-Chorehood, or WEB for short. W.E.B. would participate in a series of protests for single men to get married, Batman in particular. As the movement begins to gain popularity among single women, Barbara Gordon gets suspicious of the group and joins it in her Batgirl identity. 
As the women follow Batman all over the city, Cleo would arrive at just the right time to throw off the women and boast about how weak men are. This lack of interest in Batman makes Batman fall for Cleo. All the while, Strack and his goons manage to pull off various heists. After following a carjacking that quickly turns into a trap, Batman and Robin find themselves outmatched by a bunch of armed car thugs. Cleo, believing that Batman was not supposed to be killed, arrives and attempts to save Batman and Robin and reveals the whole plot. Batman and Cleo are about to be wed in death when the timely appearance of Batgirl saves them all. Batgirl pretends to be Cleo while Batman and Robin pretend to be corpses and round up Strack and the rest of his gang. With the crooks taking a ride in the paddy wagon, the protesters and their matrimonial activism disperse. Now, to begin with, the cover was amazing and humorous. You know, you've got the look on, uh, of disgust on Batman's face, Robin's smile, and then the signs dotting throughout the scene. Sometimes it's difficult for me to read some of these Silver Age issues because the characters present within them are such a stark contrast from those we all expect or know from right now, the modern age. You know, instead of saying that I had a problem with the entire issue, my main problem really lies with Batman being at a beauty pageant as Batman, not as Bruce Wayne, and to agree to this quote-unquote night on the town without thinking about any of the obvious ramifications. This then leads me to say that Robin was terribly foolish to take a night off from patrols just to watch this date unfold. I liked the fact that the villains were smarter than the average do-batter, and their intelligence really shows in the beginning of the issue when they are coordinating robberies and keeping track of Batman's progress on the date. Cleo was an intelligent and strong character and would have been interesting to see if she would have developed in a way different to Catwoman, but I doubt that we ever see that character again in any of the Bat books. And then we have Batgirl. Yes, Batgirl surpasses Batman and Robin in Batman's own book. At least she knew that something was fishy with Webb and decided to do something about it. And then at the end, she was, of course, the deus ex machina. And it's fitting that a woman, two women really, saved the dynamic duo. Of course, I would be remiss not to mention Webb and its crusade. You know, the whole thing sort of reeked of some 1950s housewife crusade to get single young women married. But in a twist, the crusade is against men, not women. Yet these women are unhappy, unmarried women trying to force men to pony up and get married. And what world is that a good idea? You know, you really can't force someone to do something that that person does not want to do. Moreover, I ask myself, is this a subliminal message for readers? That all these comic book fans should be getting married? You know, I can't tell. 7 out of 10 bats. Next up, we have Detective Comics number 392, A Clue, 7-foot tall. Came out in October of 1969. Writer Frank Robbins, penciler Gil Kane, inker Murphy Anderson. Quote, You lose, Stella. Lunch is on you. The fine art of lace-making indeed. So I guess wrong, Babs. Who would figure an old lady for such young ideas? That old woman in question is checking out Loves of Casanova from the library. I didn't mean to be so egotistical right there, but I was pretty happy that, you know, Babs was talking to Estella. Like I said in Batgirl Year One, um, in that episode, I often imagine being BFFs with Babs. Also contained in this issue were I Died a Thousand Deaths and Super Goof. On her way to work, Barbara Gordon spots a spectator of a mugging in Gotham Park. When the spectator shows up at the library, he introduces himself as criminologist Jason Bard. Ruh-roh. 
Babs finds Jason's background in criminology interesting and goes with him back to the scene of the crime where he points out that the mugger must have been seven feet tall. Piecing the crime together with the available evidence, Barbara is so interested in Bar that she asks him out on a date to a basketball game. There they notice that one of the players, known as Topper, has a bandage on his forehead. Bard asks about it and says that he spotted Topper jogging in Gotham Park that morning. Topper quickly dismisses this. During the game, both Jason and Barbara are secretly interested in pursuing things, but Jason decides to excuse himself to go check out the locker room, and then he finds himself attacked by thugs. He's soon rescued by Babs, his Batgirl, who went to the locker room to also investigate. She fights off the crooks, tells Bard that she's going to check out Topper's locker to find out what may be inside, and insists that Bard return to his date, thus allowing her time to quickly switch back to her civilian identity and beat Bard back to their seats. Continuing to watch the game, the couple secretly try to think of a plan to ditch each other so that they can pursue their case. Ah, it must be love. This story is then continued in the next issue, Detective Comics number 393, Downfall of a Goliath. Came out in November of 1969. Writer once again, Frank Robbins, penciler Gil Kane, and inker Murphy Anderson. Also contained in this issue were The Camo Caper and Casey the Cop. Continuing from last issue, as Bard breaks off the date, feigning a headache and pretending to leave in a cab, Bab switches back to Batgirl and hides in a locker. Bard soon returns to the locker room and hides in one of the shower stalls. After the game, Topper is informed by his goons about their previous confrontation with Bard and Batgirl. Topper then returns to the locker room and pretends to start a shower, only to catch Batgirl trying to raid his locker. Topper whips Batgirl in the face, which apparently blinds her, who knows, uh, with a towel, and Bard is unable to stop him because his lame knee ends up giving out. Lame. Topper reveals that he stole a book of information on the city's numbers rackets. While Topper debates what to do with Batgirl, Bard arrives to save the day but slips and topples on the crooks, giving Batgirl just the distraction she needs to get free and defeat them herself. The two exchange accolades once the crooks are turned over to the police, and Bard rushes home just in case Babs tries to call him. Now to begin with, once again, uh, these covers were not included in my showcase, due most probably to the fact that they depict the other stories contained in each of the Detective Comics issues, and they do not have Batgirl. I will say that Detective Comics number 393 has an intriguing cover with a tearful Robin saying goodbye to Batman. Now throughout this entire story, there were quotes dotted that were either really clever, such as, but I don't intend to sit on my fat past forever, or have so much more meaning reading them now than probably back then. Obviously, since a lot of Babs' history is yet to come, it is probably incorrect to read into them more than is right, but still, interesting. You know, number one, Babs lists off a bunch of fictional disabled crime fighters and ends with Ironside, a wheelchair-using detective. Later, the guy who hired Topper says that his goons encountered interference from Batgirl and that gimpy Joker. Finally... Just the fact that Bard has a cane reminds me of his reappearance in Birds of Prey when he gets injured and has to use a cane. This issue does beg the question, whatever happened to Mark Hanner? You know that diabetic that Batgirl saved and Barbara went out on a date with? Oh well, his loss. This is really an important issue, i.e. the introduction of Jason Bard, and I think that it is done rather well. Uh, we get a taste of Bab's life in the library, and... What she does for fun. We see her crime-solving skills as Barbara, not Batgirl, and she gets a well-deserved team-up with a handsome, intelligent guy who seems to respect her. 
Even though Jason is constantly concerned about Batgirl getting in trouble, perhaps because he feels the need to protect the quote-unquote weaker sex, and even though Batgirl does get into trouble, I do like the fact that Jason himself is weak in some aspects, and Batgirl has to bail him out. They both have strengths and weaknesses, and they both complement each other well. If one is clumsy, then the other uses that clumsiness to his or her advantage. The story was interesting and well thought out, especially since Topper was not at the top of the pyramid, was, but was actually employed slash blackmailed, who knows. The writers give you a little taste of Topper's backstory, as if they could explore that later, and they make it seem as if Topper's boss is not the boss boss. Even though this issue ends well, tying up everything that needs to be tied up, I think that it could have been interesting to see the story drawn out through another issue, um, perhaps taking down the whole of the numbers syndicate. The two nitpicky things that I must bring up are, number one, the fact that Jason never introduced himself, and one can only assume, though without visual evidence, that Babs saw his library card. And number two, why Stella introduced Barbara as Babs, and Jason calls her Babs for the duration of the issue, is beyond me. It is not likely that you would introduce a friend by a nickname if the full name is not entirely apparent, or if that nickname is only used by the closest friends. Uh, I call Barbara Babs because I feel like she's my good friend and I have known her for a while, but I certainly would introduce her as Barbara to my other friends or family or acquaintances. And you know, this actually reminds me that Jim Gordon, uh, he called his daughter Babs in Batman's Marriage Trap, uh, and I thought that read a little odd to me as well. You know, sure, my dad sometimes calls me Stell, but, you know, Gordon just feels, uh, or he seems too old-fashioned to not call his daughter by her full name at all times. Nevertheless, I really enjoy this issue, and I cannot wait to see the development of the Jason-Barber relationship. 8 out of 10 bats. When I return, we'll be getting into the very exciting Birds of Prey number one. Stay tuned. I said, the boys are back in town. 
will flow and blood will spill And if the boys wanna fight, you better let them That you box in the corner, blasting out my favorite song Tonight to get warmer, it won't be long Won't be long till summer comes Now that the boys are here again cycle from 1969 to 2010. Birds of Prey number one and run part one without breaking a few eggs. Writer, the fantastic Gail Simone. Artist, the sublime Ed Benes. Colorist, Ney Rafino. And letterer, Swans. Quote, one day these women will learn to say what they feel without thinking it makes them vulnerable. If I have to beat the living crap out of them to make it happen. The issue begins as all action-packed movies must. With action. Dino Lance, a.k.a. Black Canary, is attempting to get little Katie, spelt like Katy Perry, back to her parents, while the hostage-takers from Iceland, hopefully this is before the volcano, have other ideas, which include draining the parents of all possible ransom money. After Dino applies what she learned from Napoleon Dynamite, the bird from the Happy Hands Club, busts some heads and saves the little girl, she dusts herself off and calls it a day. Later, Lady Blackhawk, a.k.a. Zinda Blake, and Black Canary sit in a hospital waiting room when they get an unexpected call. Meanwhile, Huntress, a.k.a. Helena Bertinelli, is kicking butts and not bothering to take names when she also receives a call. Meanwhile, again, we see two new characters, Hawk, a.k.a. Hank Hall, and Dove, a.k.a. Don Granger, probably no relation to Hermione Granger, fighting some cheerleaders, going to a bar with no name, and getting a card from Lady Blackhawk who suggests they contact Oracle. Later we have a reunion with the three main birds. Oracle reports about the latest threat, which is someone who seems to know too much about several members of the superhero community. When a bird signal goes up in the sky, black canary and hunters go to the site of the signal where they find Penguin, seconds before he has an arrow through his neck, and a mysterious white canary. Bum, bum, bum. Is it really any surprise that this issue is so fantastic? This is a prime example of how you get new and old readers into a series. You don't suffocate the old reader with a lot of backstory, nor do you confuse the new reader with convoluted continuity. One must find a middle between these extremes, and that is exactly what Gail Simone did. 
I thought it was a smart choice making Dinah the mouthpiece throughout the entire issue, as well as giving her the first scene. Dinah was one of the first birds, and this just feels like one of the minis from 1999. At first I was a little out of it because Black Canary was using her canary cry um, because I'm reading Volume 1 right now and she does not have that power back yet. But it's okay, I came up to speed quickly. By far the best scene was the reunion between Dinah, Helena, and Babs. Not only was it bittersweet seeing the three together, but that combined with Dinah's voiceover and the Don't You Cry Dinah, Helena ultimately being the one to break down, and Babs's Doesn't the Moon Look Pretty, all make it such a smartly written scene. There's no question that the birds are back. I cannot really comment on Penguin's appearance because there is not much known about it at all right now. Uh, it seems like such a random character to introduce into the story, but with this book, you know that nothing is random. As for White Canary... Well, you know, the first time I saw her, like Kimberly Rockmore said, you know, I really did think it was Lady Shiva. Number one, I don't think Cassandra would come back as a villain. Again. Number two, I don't think that Cassandra would call Canary Little Bird. Only Ollie ever really called Dinah that, and Catwoman also called Dinah that, you know, without knowing the implications. But since the character is obviously Asian, I have a scary thought. What if White Canary is Sin, Dinah's daughter? You know, she undergoes a little soap opera age advancing, dons a costume the opposite of her quote-unquote mother's, and would obviously know the name Little Bird. That would certainly be shocking, no? Um, I like the idea of a villain with all the knowledge concerning the superheroes. A true threat knows everything there is to know about his or her enemies and his or her enemies' friends. Whether White Canary is in a league with this new villain is unclear. The only thing that I was not really excited about in this issue was the introduction of Hawk and Dove. Frankly, I like the birds the way they are, and I don't really want any additions to the team. Uh, kind of like Burn Notice on TV right now. Then all of Hawk's obvious problems are unloaded on us, which makes me dislike him rather than like him. I guess we'll just have to wait to see um, where it goes from here. Now, Gil Simone did say in an interview that the birds would be participating in quote-unquote nighttime activities. And while I certainly vote for Dick and Babs, I would put money on the table right now that something will happen between Lady Blackhawk and Hawk, however much of a jerk he may be. After reading the bar scene between the barista and Hawk, I don't think we need another Dick. Oh, there's a double entendre there on our hands. If you don't know what double entendre means, instead of Googling it, basically it's something that has two very different meanings. Sometimes one has a mm, asexual meaning and other times, um, never mind. Uh, and before I forget to mention it, the art was wonderful. However busty Benes makes his women, he still makes the most attractive Dinah, in my opinion. Uh, I fell in love with his art on Justice League of America when they read, I guess it was volume 3, and Dinah was leader there, leader there. So, you know, he has a knack for making attractive people, so I applaud him, and I think he really has a knack right now for drawing the birds. 9 out of 10 birds. Now to start wrapping up the episode, let me just dive into my literary recommendation. Going with an oldie but a goodie, Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. 
the story follows Elizabeth Bennet as she deals with issues of manners, upbringing, moral rightness, education, and marriage in her aristocratic society of early 19th century England. Elizabeth is the second eldest of five daughters, daughters excuse me, of a country gentleman living in the fictional town of Meryton in Hertfordshire, not far from London. Elizabeth's other sisters are Jane, the eldest, Mary, Lydia, Ugh, and Kitty. Ah. Besides other conflicts and plot points that take place, one of the key issues is the relationship between Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy. Basically, two people on opposite sides of the social sphere and physically embodying the prejudice and the pride of the title, respectively. I had been waiting to read this for whatever reason, and I finally decided that this summer would be Jane Austen's summer. For any of you who think that this is a boring book, or, you know, it will be a boring book, or, you know, it's just too heavy, let me just say that it is not as heavy as I thought it was going to be. And in fact, I would say that I read it rather quickly. Um, I was certainly not bogged down by any of the language. Austin has several novels, and if P&P doesn't fit your fancy, I dare say that there is one that will. Um, I highly recommend Northanger Abbey, though I think I will spotlight that book at another time. And speaking of spotlight, um, I'm going to do something that I will very infrequently do, uh, just a character spotlight. Um, this month, I guess this episode, I'm going to spotlight X-23. X-23 was created for the X-Men Evolution animated television series and then brought into comics, uh, similar to Harley Quinn of DC Comics and Marvel's Firestar. Um, X-23 first appears in Season 3, Episode 11, entitled, you know, obviously X-23. And the character's first comic book appearance was in NYX number 3 in 2004. In the series NYX, her history and past were never divulged. Her abilities were showcased, however. In X-23, Innocence Lost, her first miniseries, her origin was then fully explained. She appeared in the X-Men mainstream following that, um, in Uncanny X-Men issue number 450. X-23 was created by Craig Kyle. He and Christopher Yost were the writers of the two episodes of X-Men Evolution in which X-23 appears, both the aforementioned X-23 and then later in season 4, I believe, uh, Target X. Kyle and Yost also scripted X-23 Innocence Lost, uh, which was her first miniseries, a six-issue miniseries that detailed her origin, as well as X-23 Target X, her second six-issue miniseries that covers the character's experiences between her origin story and her appearance in NYX. Basically, X-23, or Laura Kenny as some may call her, is a female clone of Wolverine. Um, the Y chromosome was damaged in the process uh, of this cloning, and Dr. Sarah Kinney used another X chromosome instead and carried her to term. From an early age, she is trained to be a killing machine, and her feelings are basically beaten out of her in an attempt to make her a weapon rather than a little girl. Through the course of her two trade paperbacks, we learn more about, um, well, miniseries. I'm sorry, I read them in trade paperbacks. Uh, you know, we learn more about the character's origin, the tragedy surrounding her, and we really start to see her regain some of her humanity. Um, and the reason why I'm showcasing it now is that it's been solicited that she's going to be getting her own ongoing ongoing series beginning in September, written by Marjorie Liu and penciled by Will Conrad. For those uh, familiar with Liu, she had been working with some um, 
X-Men stuff previously. She did an X-23 one-shot, which I've been told is not up to snuff, so hopefully it'll be better. But she's also been doing Black Widow. Her run will be ending with number five. Um, and that, I will tell you from personal experience, it has been very well done. The reason I'm spotlighting her, besides this series, is just, you know, she's an interesting character. Uh, Noctis were recommended to me to read these two trade paperbacks, and, you know, I think for the first time in my life, not even back row year one to this, I was going to pick it up and read a few issues and then go to bed, but I stayed up and read the entire Innocence Lost, and I did the same thing with Target X. Very well done. Uh, the character is very interesting. So I'm I'm looking forward to it. It should be good fun. I think that now is a great time to be a female comic reader. Um, Black Widow, Batgirl, Birds of Prey, X-23, all these strong female characters are coming out into the fold. Um, I think that uh, execs are finally getting the idea that, hey, there are strong women out there and we should write about them. So... Besides, you know, the ones that were there before, like Power Girl or Ms. Marvel, were getting even more introduced, and a lot of them are very well written. So girls, yeah, start reading comics. They are not only for boys. Have any questions, comments? Send them to BatgirlToOracle at gmail.com. Please also sign the petition to get Batgirl Year One back into production. I cannot stress this enough. Go to www.gopetition.com backslash petitions slash batgirl-year-1.html. There are countless links everywhere. If you don't know where to look, email me. Ask a friend. They might know. Be also sure to send in your questions for Brian Q. Miller. That will be an awesome, awesome episode, I am sure, and I'm very excited about it. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Until next time, fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you?